0: Good morning, family. It's a good and pleasant sight to see God's people gathered together. A warm welcome to our visitors, as Brother Luke pointed out. You're a blessing to us, and we hope to be a blessing to you as well. Thank you, Brother Pat, for that uh, excellent reading. This morning, we're going to uh, get a little nostalgic, if you will. If you remember the old days, my generation and older, those of you that when you would go to the movies, you'd see a double feature. you go to the drive-in, and you see not one movie, but two movies, double feature. This morning, we're going to look at two stories, two of my favorite stories in the Bible. And we're going to see a common thought expressed in both of those stories. And then we're going to make applications, two applications of that thought, that principle. And then we'll have the gospel invitation. Our first story is where we just read in the Gospel of Luke, where Peter lets down the net. So if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And we're going to take our reading up in Luke chapter 5. And I'm reading from the NIV, starting in verse 1. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Now there's a bunch of wonderful thoughts in this story. But this morning, I want to emphasize and focus on one thought, and that's in verse 5. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. Now, I can picture me in Simon's place. I can't talk for you, but I can talk for me. And my tendency would be, whoa, 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 whoa. Who here is the fisherman? Raise your hand. That be me. Who here is the carpenter? That be you, Lord. Do I tell you how to work with wood? Do I tell you what technique to use to get that nice T angle? No. I'm the fisherman. How many people here are proud of their work? How many think, consider yourselves to be good at your job? Because I do. I consider myself to be good at my job. I hope my boss agrees. But I think I'm good at my job, and I'm proud of my work. I think Peter was, too. He said he has worked all night long. I've worked all night long, haven't caught anything. So what does that mean? I'm tired. I'm hungry because I've worked all night. I haven't caught anything. I didn't get to stop for lunch because there was no lunch to eat. And I'm frustrated, and I'm irritable because of that. Anybody ever come home from work irritable at the end of the day? So, thank God Peter is not like, that, not like me. He does speak up and say, Master, we've worked all night. We haven't caught anything. But then he says this wonderful thing, this wonderful phrase. He says, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. Anybody here a manager or a boss? You got your problem employees? Wouldn't you just love to hear, because you say so, boss, I'm going to go do such and such. Parents, how many times your children say to you, because you're mom and dad, I'm going to do what you say. (laughs) Parents, grab your chest. (laughs) Don't you just love that? Because you say so, Lord, I will. And look at the results. Look what happens because of that. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. And it says in verse 7, they filled both boats so full that they began to sink. As the scripture says, my cup runs over. Their cups were running over here. It was abundant blessings. I dare say they look back and said, man, we never had a catch like that day. God blessed them mightily. Because Peter said, because you said so, Lord, I will. And when I hear the phrase, I will, it reminds me of another time, another situation where the the phrase, I will, is mentioned. Um, And it's actually a football games. And those of you that know me know that I'm a big Ravens fan, even though they haven't done well in recent years. And one of the things they do at the stadium when they have the big screens on both ends of the stadium is while the game cuts to commercials, they'll run ads and promos and things. And one of the ads is for Under Armour, which is an athletic sportswear. And they'll have a really buff aff- athlete, and uh, he'll say, who will protect this house? And then the next screen is just two words, I will. And as you can imagine, everybody gets loud and says, I will. You might even picture that I am a teensy with weensy bit loud at these events. I will. Well certainly, a football game and church church service are different situations. So it's not like, for example, our dear Golden Sisters are gonna kick aside the walkers and say, I will. It's not like that. So not with the same volume. But I hope that I can say with at least the same enthusiasm, the same passion, the same devotion, the same zeal, instead of saying, who will protect this house? Because you say so, Lord, I will. If nobody else will, Lord, I will. With the same devotion. Let that be the thought of this story. Because you say so, Lord, I will. I'm going to leave this story and go look at another story. And it's in Jeremiah. See, if you turn with me, in the Old Testament, Songs of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Jeremiah is right in the middle. We're going to look at Jeremiah chapter 32. And as you're turning there, Jeremiah buys a field. Now, this isn't just an ordinary business transaction. This isn't his just going out to buy a field because he felt like it. This is a long chapter, so I'm going to read select verses from the chapter here to give the the gist of the story and the point. In Jeremiah 32, starting in verse 1, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He says, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is the Gentile king. He's the ruler of Babylon. He's the ruler of the world. They are the world power. The army of the king of Babylon was then besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was confined in the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace of Judah. Two things here. Why Is he confined? He's confined because he prophesied that Nebuchadnezzar would conquer Jerusalem. They didn't like it. Just think God's people didn't like hearing the word of the Lord, so they put him in prison. They confined him. Besieging Jerusalem is a second thought. Now, what does that mean? Now, folks would say, oh, Jerusalem was under attack. But that really doesn't give you an idea of what's going on here because you have to understand the circumstances of that day and age. In that day and age for a city to be besieged, that is to be under siege, cities were built with walls around them as protection. Today we have tanks and planes and submarines and warships and all that. In that day and age they had walls. The wall was built around the city, it had one gate, you would come in and, and leave and that all the business The commerce was transacted through that gate. The elders of the city would sit at the entrance of the gate and conduct all the business there. When an invading army attacked the city, they would build a ramp up to the top of the wall so that they could go over the wall and go in and attack the the residents. What it became was a war of attrition because by day, the invading army would build the ramp by night, the residents of the city would tear down the ramp. So, it was, who, which side would outlast the other? And sometimes these attacks would go on for months, even years at a time. It was a war of attrition. And during that time, food couldn't come in, and waste could not go out. So you can imagine, that for the residents of the city, that was the worst possible scenario, the worst case scenario for them. They were in danger of the sword, they were in danger of famine, and they were in danger of plague, all the dreadful diseases from being in their waste. Worst case scenario. Verse six, Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me, Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle, is going to come to you and say, Buy my field at Ananoth. Verse 8. Then just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the guard and said, Buy my field at Ananoth. Now this is what is known in real estate circles as a buyer's market. Because who in the world would buy a field when you're under siege, you're under attack? Your children are about to be dragged off as slaves. Your women are about to be abused. The men are going to be maimed and killed. They're going to lose all their possessions. And God says, buy a field. It makes no sense. Now, the thought is not conveyed. The words, rather, are not uh, present here because you say so, Lord. But the thought is most certainly present because you say so, Lord. Verse 9, So I bought the field at Ananah from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed, and weighed out the silver on the scales. Everything is just, you know, verified. I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions, as well as the unsealed copy. And I gave this deed to Barak, son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel and of the witnesses who had signed the deed and of all the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the guard. They're taking great pains to make sure that this witness, that this transaction is witnessed and verified. In their presence, I gave Barak these instructions This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Take these documents, both the sealed and unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a clay jar so they will last a long time. Just as an aside, this is how the Dead Sea Scrolls were preserved for centuries, several centuries, is this method right here. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. After I had given the deed of purchase to Barak, son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord. And Verse 24 is the end of his prayer. He says, See how the siege ramps are built up to take the city? Because of the sword, famine, and plague, the city will be handed over to the Babylonians who are attacking it. What you said has happened, as you now see, And though the city will be handed over to the Babylonians, you, O sovereign Lord, say to me, buy the field with silver and have the transaction witnessed. This is ridiculous. God answers Jeremiah. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. I am the Lord, the God of Israel. He doesn't say God of Israel, does he? He says, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? And I love that verse. Is anything too hard for me? Imagine saying that. Well, if I said that, it'd be a list, a long list. So you can't do this, you can't do that, wouldn't even attempt this. But God says, is anything too hard for me? Verse 36, you were saying about this city, by the sword, famine, and plague, it will be handed over to the king of Babylon. But this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, now is the God of Israel. He's emphasizing his relationship with Israel, his covenant, his favor. These are his people. I will surely gather them from all the lands where I banish them in my furious anger and great wrath. I will bring them back to this place and let them live in safety. They will be my people, and I will be their God. Verse 40, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them, and I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. This is what the Lord says, as I have brought all this great calamity on this people so I will give them all the prosperity I have promised them. Once more, fields will be bought in this land. What does that mean? Once more, it will be business as usual. Once more, it will be peace and prosperity out of the worst of situations. Just like Peter, Jeremiah in essence said, because you say so, Lord, I will. And just as with Peter, with blessings overflowing, the boats beginning to sink from all the fish, in the worst case scenario, their prosperity and peace, their relationship with God is going to be restored. You know, there's a popular saying, uh, an anagram, WWJD in religious circles, what would Jesus do? And I applaud the intent of that anagram, but I don't consider it to be entirely accurate or applicable. For example, um, when the boat was out at, at sea with his disciples in it and Jesus was on land, he walked on the water to get to the boat. You know, what would Jesus do? He walked on the water. Now, as you can imagine, I float pretty well, but I don't float well enough to walk on the water. So I'm not reaching the boat that way. I would love, if a hundred years from now, there was a different anagram that was popular. And it wasn't WWJD, but it was BYSSL. Because you say so, Lord. Because you say so, Lord, I will. And I hope and pray that everyone in this house and in all the houses of God, all the churches of Christ, everywhere, everyone will say, because you say so, Lord, whether I understand it or even like it or not, I will. I will. Let me give you two brief applications, and then we'll conclude with a gospel invitation. Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to the book of Ephesians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, we read in verse 19 and 20, Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. As you drive up and down Ritchie Highway, you will see congregations, and they have their their billboards, and they'll say, for example, traditional worship. Then they'll say contemporary worship at a different time. Usually those congregations have a parking lot full and the pews are full, sadly. Contemporary worship means they have a band. In the old days, it was the little old lady on the organ. In these days, it's a folk band. Acoustic guitars, bass, keyboard, drums, all that. If they're really contemporary, they have an electric guitar and they're rocking out. Now, that packs the pews but it's not what God wants. God said, speak to one another. Sing spiritual songs. So because he says so, I will, we will, and that's what we do. God will give us the blessings if we do what he says. One more example. Turn with me to First Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon. You look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. In verse 1. We can read about elders. In verse 1, Paul writes, Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, that is an elder, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife. What does God say? The husband of one wife. What is popular in the religious world today? Women preachers, women deacons, women elders. It is sad commentary on our society, the way we are trending, that if someone says, I'm a Muslim, people are like, oh, that's cool, that's really neat. But if you say you're a Christian, you're Islamophobic, misogynistic, homophobic, racist, sexist, and a whole bunch of uh, phobias and istics that I never realized were there when I was young. Didn't know about, never heard the words before. I'm a Christian. Nothing more, nothing less, period. And I'm not homophobic or misogynistic or any of those other words. Sometimes you gotta look them up. Any of those other words. Because you say so, Lord, an elder is a husband of but one wife. It's that simple. And even if their parking lots are full, we will do what the Lord says. Because you say so, Lord, I will. I will. So let that be the thought for today. Because you say so, Lord, I will. I don't always understand. I don't always like it but because you say so, Lord, I will. Because even if I don't see the blessings in this life, I guarantee you, family and friends, we will see the blessings in the next life. And there'll be more than you could ever dream of to be with our God. To anyone who's not a Christian, I say this. In Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 36. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. The same Peter says to the crowd, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So he's saying, you can be sure that Jesus Christ is Lord. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent, that is to change your mind, to see things differently. And be baptized, that is to be dipped, to be immersed. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. In the religious world, it's popular to say, say the sinner's prayer. Or put your hand on the radio. Or send the preacher $100. Not that I'm refusing donations. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding, just being bad. You were baptized or you were sprinkled as an infant. Any one of a number of things. It doesn't say to be baptized as an outward sign of an inward grace. It says to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Common sense the good Lord gave you would tell you that if you're really dirty and sweaty and you're not really fit for company that you don't get clean by looking at the shower or the bathtub and believing the shower and bathtub can make you clean. You don't get clean until you get in the water. And you don't get clean in your soul until you get in the water. And it might not make sense that you got to get in the water to have all your wrongs and failures washed away. But because you say so, Lord, I will. And everyone here who's a Christian has said to God, I will. And to anyone who's not a Christian, I hope and pray that today, this morning, is the day that you say to God, I will. So we invite you to come forward now while we stand and sing the invitation song.